You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the group think, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to the conservative conscience here at Conservative Review. This is your one and only host, Daniel Horowitz, on this fine Wednesday, June the 12th. And uh, if I sound a little wild today, just know it's because I got very little sleep last night. Some of you who have young kids... I don't know if you experience this, but what is it with four-year-olds just reverting back to uh, infant stage? We had this with all our kids, but it's worse with with Zach, our youngest. He's just getting up every night now, screaming his head off. He says he's in pain. You know, it's just a a ruse to get get his mommy in the room. And then then I had this weird post-nasal drip from this cold I had a couple weeks ago just kind of came back and I was choking all night. So I'm just really tired, have a big headache, but we are in full force today. I was thinking one of our readers, Vicky, I believe, sent us a story here from Dallas, Texas. That's unfortunately nothing new, but in many ways it embodies what we face in this country now. As patriotic, traditional Americans that just want to live in our homeland without debt, without subsidies, without market distortions, without government taking over health care, without being strangers in our own land, with illegals running rampant, without crime, without invaders, without government prioritizing everyone but just our security and sovereignty. You know, just the government that we adopted in 1789. So I thought this was a good metaphor for what's going on to all of us. This is from the DallasNews.com. A Dallas couple thought they were sharing the same nightmare Saturday morning when they discovered a naked man in the bedroom of their apartment. Sleepy and confused, Trent Tate and his wife Hope soon realized the man hovering over their bed was real when the couple said he told them, go back to sleep or I will expletive kill you. Oscar Martinez Gomez, 23, was arrested on a charge of burglary of (coughs) habitation and remains in the Dallas County Jail on $5,000 bail. (laughs) Jeez. According to the Dallas County Sheriff's Department, he also faces an immigration hold. Ooh, okay. So this is a dreamer. Um, Anyway, they say uh, when the couple awoke, the suspect said, if you move, I'll I'll kill you. Uh, He was looking over us. He even, Trent Tate said Saturday, from his parents' home. He he even touched my wife's face to push her toward the bed. I noticed he was completely naked, and that's when I got triggered. Trent Tate fought back, grabbing Gomez by his arms and wrists and throwing him on the ground. He then held the suspect down for about five minutes until police arrived and arrested him. I had no idea if he was really a threat or not, Tate said. 
when I had him on the ground, he didn't try to fight back. He just listened to me and stayed on the ground. Well, that's kind of America in a nutshell, if you think about it. That, that's what we're dealing with. It's like someone breaks in buck naked, tells us to shut up. Except, where is our Trent Tate? You know, speaking of Texas, this happened in Dallas, near Dallas. Where is, where are those Texans? Senator Ted Cruz today at dedication of Hidden Figures Way. Today is a celebration of African-American pioneers. He says the movie inspired him to sponsor a bill to rename a street in honor of the NASA female, female engineers who paved the way for others. NASA. Well, maybe we're going to have to all take a rocket ship to Mars. So maybe NASA is important because there is no refuge on Earth for our values anymore. So we'll probably have to go there. So maybe Ted is right to focus on NASA. But really, where is Ted? I mean, this is the question that Dan McLaughlin, he's the mayor of, what's that city again in the Del Rio area? Uvalde, Texas. He's the guy I interviewed yesterday. Um, I forget if I had it in, in show notes, but I'm going to put it in today. I did a whole interview on him about his area getting overrun. And he's like, he said the same thing to me. He said, where are all these guys? Ted Cruz. Certainly Cornyn. I mean, we know where he is. He's for the other side. He's for the cartels. Um, and I felt bad for him because his congressman is Will Hurd, the guy who just voted for amnesty, big liberal Republican. He's right next to Chip Roy's district, and he told me, man, I wish Chip could annex that into his district. Chip's the only one, if you look at his Twitter feed. I mean, remember, Chip is passively aggressively tweeting at John Cornyn. He worked for Cornyn before he worked for Cruz. Chip's got guts. But, you know, there's no one like him with a platform of a statewide elected office. Where's Greg Abbott? You know, and now our resident Texas border ex- expert for the conservative conscience, Jason Jones, before the show, he just texted me that just received word border funds have dried up for Texas Rangers. Ranger recon units are even being disbanded. The border is an all fed failing game now. So there's no leadership on the state level, on a federal level. And literally towns like Uvalde, which by the way, are 90% Hispanic, you know, ancestry of the people living there, are just totally invaded. And I wasn't going to say naked, but speaking of the devil, what what this guy told me, Dan McLaughlin, and he said it on the record. My copy editor took it out. Um, I didn't fight her on it. God bless you, Cindy. But um, he did give it to me on the record that Border Patrol did tell him that some of these Congolese, because the Cong- the Africans are going into the Del Rio sector, that's obviously where the special interest alien smuggling route is, that a lot of them, he was told, they, they um, you know, when they have to go, they pull down their pants and just just go where they are. So that's what we're bringing in. Um, So anyway, I just thought that was kind of a metaphor for what's going on. But it's also a metaphor for the rape of America. And frankly, 
the rape of Trump voters. I'm sorry. Nobody voted for this. You look at the debt and spending numbers, you look at the healthcare numbers, and you look at the immigration numbers, and you contra- contrast them to where they were back, back when Trump took over. And as I said before, it's not all Trump's fault, but it's the mixture of the worst Republican leaders ever in McConnell and Cornyn in the Senate, a distracted conservative movement and media, a president who sometimes is good, but then sometimes follows bad advice, has some good people in his administration, but then he often listens to the bad people. So we get the worst of everything. And he doesn't follow through with his own agenda. So before we want to, before we come back to the border today, <clears throat> I want to start with spending, which ultimately gets back to it. Just so you understand what we're dealing with, with McConnell and Cornyn. McConnell and Cornyn are the two leading Republicans in the Senate. Trump is not pressuring them to change. Trump is not pushing them out of leadership. And by the way, both of them are up for re-election. You tell me what the next six years looks like. Let's say Trump wins re-election. What will the spending figures, what will the healthcare figures, and what will the immigration figures look like by 2024 if we're going to keep McConnell and Cornyn in the Senate? The passion of McConnell and Cornyn. The only thing they get passionate about are codifying Democrat priorities and fighting conservatives. It's that simple. That's the only thing they get passionate about. I want to discuss two articles. One I already have out. One I'm not sure if I'm going to have out by the time the show's out. But... um. want to just preface this by noting that there's a new poll out that shows Justin Amash down 16 points to this challenger, Jim Lower, 49% to 33% in Michigan's 3rd District. Now, we spoke about Justin Amash before, and whatever you think of him or think of Trump, the point is, that you see that Trump basically owns the the primary electorate. Okay? I mean, it's very rare. I mean, you know how hard it is to defeat incumbents, how much I've worked on that. It's, it's almost impossible. Right off the bat, Amash is starting as an incumbent 16 points down. Now, everyone's getting involved in the politics of Amash and impeachment and Trump and this and that. But I look at it and I say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Cornyn is up for re-election. McConnell is up for re-election. Graham is up for re-election. Tillis is up for re-election. Whole bunch of other rhinos. Trump could remake the party in his own agenda tomorrow. Why is it that the only guy you go after is Amash? And look... You know I'm the farthest thing from a progressive libertarian. I'm the other end of the spectrum. But let me say two things about Amash that aren't true 
about the aforementioned Republican senators. Those guys, let's face it, they are just as anti-Trump as Amash. In the background, they they have toppled his agenda, and, they, and Amash doesn't have any power. These guys do. They single-handedly ruined every single budget leverage he has, every immigration leverage he has. They oppose him on everything. There's just two differences about Amash. At least Amash does it like a man, and he does it out in the open, unlike these other weasels. And at least there's a saving grace that Amash is fiscally conservative. Something you certainly can't say about these other guys. But really? I mean, look, if you're going to be like, it's the Trump agenda, it's the Trump personality, for better or for worse, fine. So then at least get that. So if you're going to go after Mark Sanford and Justin Amash, you sure as hell are going to go after McConnell and Cornyn and Graham and Tillis and all these other rhinos, including rhinos who, by the way, in addition to being liberal, personally attack Trump, but yet Trump supports them. I mean, Mitt Romney, Mitt Romney, the guy's out there pushing a carbon tax now. He attacks Trump personally every day. He did even before the primary. He had a primary in an, it was an open seat when Orrin Hatch retired. And Trump backed him. Like, well, what am I supposed to do with that? There's one thing if Trump is like, okay, you're with me or you're against me. All right. So even a conservative who butts up against him, he'll, he'll, you know, attack him and he'll try to lodge a primary challenge against him. Okay. Nine out of 10 times will benefit from it. But we get the lowest common denominator, as I always say. (laughs) It's only where the swamp agrees with Trump and Trump agrees with the swamp. That's when we're going to get an outcome from it. So the swamp hates Amash because he's a fiscal conservative and he doesn't play ball with the party. Trump hates him because of the impeachment thing. So he's gone. Similar thing with with, uh, Mark Sanford. But when it comes to Romney and Tillis and and Cornyn and McConnell, and Cornyn and McConnell hold the keys to everything. Now, Trump could leverage them with a veto threat, but that's a different story. But um, where is he on that? So anyway, yesterday I did an article on um, the passion of McConnell. What does this man feel passionate about? What does this man feel passionate about? Imagine if Mitch McConnell cared as much about a border as he did about pork projects. So some of you might have seen Politico did an expose, and it was well done because they had multiple email conversations, local elected officials confirming it. But basically, McConnell has this guy that was an aide to him that became an aide to Elaine Chow, his wife, who's the transportation secretary, to go and approve projects that would have otherwise been rejected from his state, pet infrastructure projects. He had this guy sign off on them, Todd Inman from Owensboro, Kentucky. So the city, this is Owensboro, Kentucky, submitted its first grant application during the final months of the Obama administration under a freight and highway improvement program called Fastline. 
But after a technical review by career DOT staff, the city's application was passed over in favor of other projects. According to Davies County Chief Executive Al Manningly, that's Owensboro, by the way, local officials were undeterred and saw Chow's appointment as Transportation Secretary in Owensboro local Todd Inman's new role as Director of Operations in her office as a valuable connection moving forward. Back in Washington, Inman encouraged that perception. <clears throat> in a February 2017 email to McConnell's Chief of Staff, he wrote, the Secretary has indicated if you have a Kentucky-specific issue that we should flag for her attention, <laughs> this is husband and wife, uh, to please continue to go through your normal channels, but feel free to contact me directly as well so we can monitor or follow up as necessary. That's a quote from an email. Owensboro submitted a second grant application in the first year of the Trump administration under the department's infra grant program, the new administration's successor to Fastline, which was likewise unsuccessful. <laughs> so even the new administration blocked it. But weeks before that application was due, McConnell's office emailed members of Chow's staff with the Owensboro R- Riverport Authority CEO's contact information requesting technical assistance for the Riverport's grant application. Derek Kane, Chow's undersecretary for policy, forwarded the request to his deputy, who confirmed that they were following up. Finally, in 2018, the Riverport resubmitted a third time under the department's BUILD program, a competitive infrastructure grant program that began under the Obama administration's economic stimulus law. Yay, we're all for the stimulus. Um, This time, the application was successful. City officials held a December news conference in front of a Christmas tree in City Hall announcing the $11.5 million federal award. Four months later, as McConnell prepared to launch his re-election campaign, he called Mayor Watson and asked him to pull together a group of of political and business leaders at the Riverport to tout his role in getting Owensboro the grant award. On April 22nd, within days of officially launching his 2020 campaign, the Senate Majority Leader stood inside a Riverport building and celebrated his achievements. Quote, I can't tell you how exciting it is for me to see what the riverfront has spawned, McConnell told the assembled crowd. Not only the project itself, but all around it. That is the Politico expose. This is what Mitch McConnell feels passionate about, just so you know. To him, this is the making of a man. I was able to secure a project from my wife. I mean, that takes guts, buddy. You won't stand up to the cartels. You won't stand up for national security. You won't stand up against Islamic fascism. You won't stand up against homofascism. You won't stand up for anything. You won't stand up for even holding the line on Obama-era immigration levels and spending levels. Nothing. Nothing from this man. Think about it. We've had this border crisis since the whole separation of families nonsense a year ago. Remember on this show we talked about a year ago how Grassley was pondering in Judiciary Committee a florist fix. It was like understood that in July of last year we were going to vote on it. It's been a year and there has not been a single piece of legislation brought to the floor. But this is what McConnell is busy with. Chip Roy tweeted out, if only we could turn border security into pork. So you have McConnell and Cornyn. Whether it's on spending, budget bills, which ties back into immigration or immigration, they don't give a darn about the emergency. They care about 
whenever Trump responds with something, then suddenly they they speak up. So so um they're both attacking Ken Cuccinelli. He's a friend of mine. Ken was appointed by Trump as the acting USCIS director. That's the agency responsible for asylum policy. And all these guys, McConnell, Cornyn, Thune, all the top three Senate leaders are opposing him. Everything Trump does. See, that's the thing. They could oppose him and, and Trump doesn't care. I mean, I can't be more pro-Trump than Trump is himself. But that's just with this issue. That's just with this issue. Um, let me um, let me go on to the next issue. And I'm going to have a write-up explaining this. McConnell and Cornyn insulted Trump's budget head, the head of the Office of Management Budget or acting director, Russ Vote. Good guy. I've known him for years. Not only is he the last fiscal conservative standing, he's solid on the border. I know he is a, a voice for our approach. Let's just say our approach on immigration within the administration. But, you know, he's viewed as the budget guy. So, you know, he doesn't have that much clout on immigration. And it's not lost on McConnell and Cornyn who Russ Vote is. They know exactly who he is and his history and his wife and some of his staff. You know, the fact that they were involved in rhino hunting. And Cornyn himself almost blocked uh, Russ's nomination as deputy OMB director. But as you all know, So Trump has given away all of his leverage. He signed the February budget bill, giving away his leverage. He signed the supplemental disaster bill, giving away his leverage. So the next big thing is September. Going into October 1st, the new fiscal year, there's two fiscal points of leverage that are converging on each other at the same time. If we had a conservative movement, we'd be mobilizing for this. And it's not just spending... Again, anything you want to do on any policy, most prominently the border, it's going to tie into this. This is your leverage. This is it. And McConnell and Cornyn and all these guys, I mean, all of them, all of them, the the entire slate of GOP senators. I mean, really, as much as that we don't like House Republicans, they look like our founding fathers compared to Senate Republicans. So anyway, they're doing everything they can. I mean, viciously attacking anyone who doesn't want to give in to the Democrats. You you know how it goes. If you don't support us, you're helping the Democrats, but you better help the Democrats get their policies across. Otherwise, you're against us. That's kind of how how, uh, the circuitous logic goes here. So let's just set the table for this fiscal fight. Some of you might not know this because you're not going to hear it on porn, a.k.a. Fox News. But for the first eight months of this fiscal year, first eight months of this fiscal year, that is through May from last October 
through May. Right now it's middle of June, so we have the full numbers for May, according to CBO. We have spent $3 trillion, a little bit more than $3 trillion. That is $255 billion more than last year. But it's roughly a half a trillion more than during Obama's final year, FY 2016. We all remember when we were shocked, shocked about the Obama spending levels. Oh, my, there was nothing like it, right? Remember that. Spawned the Tea Party movement. The last year of Obama, let me put it to you this way. Spending for the first eight months of this fiscal year is 18.2% higher than the first eight months of FY 2016, Obama's final year, just three years ago. So I don't know how you factor in inflation for three years. I haven't done it on a calculator, but this is 18.2%. And by the way, revenue is up like 28% since then because of the economy. See, that's another thing. Revenue, you know, they all said the tax cuts are, are, you know, drowning us in revenue. And I guess you could say without them, we could have gotten even more revenue, but it's not responsible for the deficit because we've actually had $44 billion more in revenue than this time last year. So the deficit's only $206 billion more, but spending is $255 billion more. So revenue's up. So anyway, notice how the spending almost parallels immigration. It's a similar thing. Unprecedented numbers on both. With Republicans in control of the trifecta for the first two years, and this year, two out of the three branches of government, organs of government. So you would think we'd actually deal with this. But no, at every opportunity, they have new spending, a new supplemental bill, and no questions asked. Okay, no, no, no questions asked. So there's two points of leverage. There's two points of leverage I want to talk about. The debt ceiling and the budget caps. See, it's very hard to pass a new bill, right? I mean, we th- th- that's what we talk about this on immigration all the time. You're not going to be able to pass a new bill. That, that everyone agrees. A new legislation, new laws, certainly that are conservative. You could pass new liberal ones because it's a super majority of liberals. But um, basically... Simply by doing nothing, Republicans, if they were conservative, they're not. But if you had a conservative party, simply doing nothing, the status quo benefits you. Because we don't want to raise the budget caps and we don't want to raise the debt ceiling. They're the ones who want to do that. So simply by doing nothing, we have the leverage. And that's when you harness a national debate. And you say, wait a minute. 
We have a stop sign. The problem is not the debt ceiling. That's not the crisis. The crisis is the debt. You don't say, oh, there's a problem with a stop sign. I'm just going to go through it. No, you stop and you proceed with caution. It's not hard to explain to the American people that if you are facing a similar situation, you would have to stop issuing new debt and you get your fiscal house in order. That's the only way to force it. They're not going to tackle this stuff alone as a standalone. You have to force the issue. Now, you might say, well, Daniel, uh, but it's too hard to do because it's going to be a default. So this is the big lie that they're pushing. And they've been lying about this forever. Default. Let me explain to you something. I don't know exactly the date because the because they're using extraordinary measures and it's going to run out at some point in September, I think. But let's just say September 20th. I'm just making it up for a minute. I don't have the exact date. That's the last day that they could, you know, get around with without cutting stuff. The, what the debt ceiling means is that you're statutorily not allowed to issue more debt. Oh, my gosh. So we, we default, right? No, no. As much as the interest on the debt is going up, it's still just about 350 or so billion dollars. We're going to get well over 3 trillion in revenue this year. Well over that. <laughs> so, it's not even close. Of course, the debt, the, the interest on the debt will get paid. So that is a lie if anyone tells you we're going to default. The interest on the debt will be... The only way you default is you don't pay the interest on the debt. That will get paid. Then what you would do, what any sane person would do is, it's not that we don't have any money. We have a lot of... Re- we actually have record revenue. But the spending is so out of control that it's overshooting even that by record numbers. So then you start doing what any family would do is, it's not like you don't have any money, but you don't have the ability to issue more debt. See, but you have revenue. You just don't have enough to cover everything you want to do. Especially in a situation where, where you shouldn't be doing it. Where you shouldn't be uh, issuing in, you, you shouldn't be um, pushing for any of this stuff. A lot of these programs are a waste. Everyone agrees to that. So I don't have the new math in front of me. I'm trying to get it here. Because I've done, I did an analysis a couple of years ago, based on where the spending was back then. But we're we're going to get about three point five, three point six trillion in revenue. If you go down the list of expenditures, you start with the biggies. Social Security is going to be about you know nine hundred billion. You cover that. Or, or more like a, a trillion. It's going to be about a trillion to cover that. 
Medicare, Medicaid. I mean, again, I don't believe that that's vital, but I'm just you know playing in their games. Medicare, Medicaid, VA, and Homeland Security, and military. Okay? And that will leave about a certain amount, and I, I don't have it in front of me, but not nothing. You'll be able to prioritize the rest of the discretionary departments, and that will force the cuts. Again, it's it, it's a lot, but it's not that much that we're overshooting. We do have about $3.5, 3600000000000 in revenue. So, you know, you have enough to cover more than 75% of what you want to fund. But it's that extra 25%. That's what a say. And, and then you could compromise. All right. We're not going to cut the entire budget by 25%. We're not going to cut everything. But let, let, let's, let's cut out just even 10% of that remaining 25%. And in return for that, we'll raise the debt ceiling. But just before you do that, I mean, it's common sense. It's not that hard to give over to people. But I didn't even get to the story yet. Because the administration already caved on it. I mean, God forbid, should we... No, default, default. The big lie. Again, it's a big lie. Default means... You don't pay the interest on the debt. Remember, we're getting three and a half trillion in revenue. This is about three hundred fifty billion of interest on the debt. It's growing. It's a lot, but you're going to cover it. And again, these are I'm, I'm I'm working with annual numbers. Obviously, when you're going through a you know a debt ceiling and you can't issue debt, it's a week by week, month by month thing. So I, I'm just giving to you the annual expenditure numbers to make it easier. But you could, you know, play more games with that. And, you know, again, you prioritize your payments, but certainly interest on the debt is always number one and that gets paid. But they're not fighting on it. So they're going to give the Democrats a clean debt ceiling. So all Ross vote was asking for is, says, look, if you're going to give them a clean debt ceiling, then give them a clean debt ceiling. Then just do that and don't throw in a second capitulation, which is the budget caps. Okay, so what's the budget caps? Pursuant to the 2011 Budget Control Act, automatically at the end of the year, first in October, a certain amount, and then in January 1st, the sequestration kicks in. At the end of the day, you're going to have a total of an automatic $124 billion in discretionary spending cuts. So that is, it's first about $35 billion. So it starts off more gradual. And, and, and that's the thing. It's not a cliff. It's $35 billion in October. And then another $89 billion in January, on January 1st, three months later. And and that's when you get your leverage. You go over the deadline. You don't say, oh my gosh, we can't let it happen. We're going to die. No, and then you at least secure something. No. They're like, you know, so anyway, Politico reports that during, you know, McConnell had a meeting with Russ Vote and then Mick Mulvaney, who was the acting chief of staff, he was the former OMB director before Russ. 
And it says McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, was open to different ways to raise the debt ceiling and eager to avoid default, but he eventually grew tired of hearing from vote. Quote, listen, buddy, we're not doing a clean debt ceiling. Get a budget caps deal. McConnell said, according to people familiar with the conversation in April. Well, a budget, you know what a budget caps deal means. It means you abolish the budget caps and give the Democrats what they want, like they did the last five times. Now, Trump promised he would never sign a budget bill like that again. Russ vote is upholding his budget promises, the MAGA agenda. But anyway, um, Cornyn then chimes in, I don't see the leader as negotiating with OMB or the chief of staff. The leader doesn't negotiate with staff. <laughs> so they want to throw onto the debt ceiling. They want to throw busting the budget caps too. And I think Russ's thing is like, he knows that they don't have the guts to fight on the debt ceiling. So he's like, look, let's just write that off, give it to them. And then we we just fight on the... um." At least we fight on the budget caps, and of course, McConnell and Cornyn don't want that. Now, of course, even if you're a fiscal liberal, you would at least use this as leverage if, you're, if you feel in the back of your mind you're going to eventually give them the $125 billion. You would at least say to yourself, all right, you know... I'll give you the spending Democrats if you give me the border or at least get policy change. But no, no, because again, they don't care. They want open borders. They want endless spending. But I want, I want to read to you one more. There's one more important point here. So now obviously Cornyn can't look like he's openly a liberal because again, they're, they're, they're weasels. So they're not man enough like Justin Amash to say where he stands so he says, we do need to cut spending. Yes, sir. We, we need to cut spending. But cutting discretionary spending, especially defense spending, is not the place to save money. It's in the entitlement programs. I love it. It's awesome. It's always go chase the squirrel. It's the thing that's not in front of us now where we don't have leverage with, oh, go do that. Now, a couple things here. First of all, discretionary spending is what they have the automatic mechanism for. There is no automatic mechanism to cut it. It's a mandatory spending. You'd have to pass a new law to to cut it. And with the discretionary, it's the opposite. We have the law built in on our side. You do nothing. We have the leverage because then nothing happens. The spending cuts automatically happen. But moreover, oh, Cornyn, you mean you're open to entitlement spending cuts? Gee, since you took over, they have increased, they added an entire new Medicare entitlement. But anyway, Folks, you guys know this. What is the single biggest driver of entitlement spending? Healthcare. Healthcare is the 800-pound gorilla in the room. Okay? That is the 800-pound gorilla in the room. Guess what? McConnell's already on record as saying, quote, this was from last year. Everybody I know in the Senate, everybody is in favor of maintaining coverage for pre-existing conditions. There is no difference of opinion about that whatsoever. So 
So McConnell has already said that on the core element of the insurance regs that's driving the inflation, the insanity in insurance, and therefore engendering the need of all these subsidies. There is not a no difference between the parties on, on the fundamental philosophy of healthcare. We knew that already. There is no, I mean, this is clear. I warned about it when I was the man to recruit Matt Bevin against uh, Mitch McConnell, and, and no one believed me. How dare you accuse McConnell of liking Obamacare? And that, by the way, it was in response to me is when he invented the ad. We're going to appeal it root and branch. And then he says on the very mechanism that is the linchpin of the entire Obamacare, there is not a dime's worth of difference between Democrats and Republicans. And this guy has the balls to look at Russ' vote and say, hey, why are you going after discretionary spending? The entitlement spending is a real problem. It's unbelievable. These people are lower. They, they, they are lower than maggots. They really are. I, I really mean this. There's libertarians like Amash. There's Democrats, there's the progressives. Phony Republicans are the lowest human beings alive. They literally don't. I mean, the left at least believes in killing America. Like they think it's a good thing. Some of them do. These guys will just come there and feast off the carcass and take selfies of it. That's their job in life. Let's get in our pork while we can. But these are the low lives that are running the party. They laugh at Trump's staff. They laugh at his budget. They ruin all of his leverage points. And this guy will not go after them. Justin Amash is, I don't care if you love him, hate him, or in between. He's meaningless. One backbencher house guy. There is not a dime's worth of difference between McConnell and the Democrats on health care, between McConnell and the Democrats on um, spending, between McConnell and the Democrats on immigration, between McConnell and the Democrats on national security and military priorities. And that's another thing. So John Thune and these other guys are quoting the article saying, well, yeah, you see, a military spending. What military spending? Social work in the Middle East? Trump campaigned against that. We don't need more military spending. You could have all the weapons and toys we have if you just cut out the operations on behalf of our enemies in the Middle East. You don't have to cut base defense. And use it for the cartels. I'm sick of hearing this. You know, if the only purpose of our military is to send them to hellholes to empower Iran to referee tribal warfare and get our soldiers killed and prosecute our soldiers for doing too good of a job and then bringing in hundreds of thousands of migrants from these areas while ignoring our border and having our troops disarmed at our own border and having cartel drone technology engaging in espionage of our border and not even shooting it down. You know what? Zero out the military budget then. Then who needs a military? But anyway, I want to update you. That is what's going on on the budget negotiations. So let's go back to immigration. We started off the show today with the story of 
this naked illegal breaking in. And, and I was just saying that it's almost like we're the ones being tied down in our own home and being beaten and like there's nothing we can do about it. Our laws aren't being followed. Straight up. Straight up our laws aren't being followed. And we're told that that is the law. So that are but by the way that article is um with that you know case in Dallas that actually is up on Drudge now right under my article he does have um at least as of uh, now the second to the very top um not being screened quarantined so I have an article out today 550 Africans came in to Texas in just one week mainly in the Del Rio sector um I got the numbers straight up from my sources. I have the document. I, I don't... By the way, whenever I do this, I don't publicly release the document because it also has other stuff on it. And, you know, look, I don't want to release it. The government doesn't want it released, but I do have it. And I think people should know the numbers, um, at least of those coming from selected countries. 101 from Angola, six from Cameroon, one from Gabon, one from Niger, 314 from Democratic Republic of Congo and 130 from Republic of Congo. So, you know, when I was growing up, what we call Congo, or now it's the Democratic Republic of Congo, was Zaire. Um, that's the DRC. The plain Republic of Congo is just to its west. It's a separate country. The reason why I'm saying that is the DRC, which is the one where we have the most migrants from, from Africa, that is the country with the Ebola outbreak, um, over 2,000 cases, as of the first week in June, it keeps going up every day. And the also, a lot of people forget is that they're experiencing measles. 87,000 cases of measles. 87,000 cases. Um, here is the big news of that. And, and, and that's why, uh, this is what I think, you know, Drudge put up. Um, where is this? Where is this? Here it is. Yesterday during testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee, Kevin McAleenan gave away the farm. CBP won't admit this if you do a press inquiry, but he's the top dog. I mean, he's the acting DHS secretary. He admitted it openly. So there's no games here. He just started to talk about all the deleterious effects of the border, and he didn't list all of them, but he lists some of them. And then he actually said the public health risk. Family units are released into our communities with unknown vaccination status and without a standard medical examination for communicable diseases of public health concern, as well as a public health risk of disease outbreak at processing facilities. So we got it right there. You know, they play games. Oh, we check them. And we're like, no, you check them for triage dehydration for their purposes so they don't die on you. But if they're carrying communicable diseases, you don't do that sort of exam and then have the requisite time of incubation before releasing them. That is what I've been proving for so long. And now we got the top dog at DHS on the record. Written testimony. I got it in my article. That's it. Now, there'd be one thing if we just had a handful of people coming. But we have hundreds of thousands coming from the worst conditions, medically, sanitary, and then the travel itself is through the worst conditions. And they're just being released. And, 
And we're told that's the law. When the law says the opposite, they must be held. Rooted deep in our history and tradition, we have a lawless nation. The other thing is, I forget if I mentioned this yesterday, but the numbers from Venezuela are ticking up. I've been watching that, the weekly Texas numbers. Again, this is just Texas. I don't have the other states. They were in the single digits first week in June. And and, and again, this is just Texas alone, 47. Those numbers are ticking up. Venezuela has every disease known to man now. I mean, that's all over the media. You could see it everywhere because of their, their entire system collapsed. Polio, they got dengue fever, they have malaria. Um, you know. And then of course there's the mumps outbreak from Honduras. Honduras is the source of the of the most migrants now. It's overtaken Guatemala. Before it was Guatemala, now it's Honduras. Um we got fifty one cases. In Hidalgo County, Texas, we got 47 cases of mumps in Penal County, Arizona. So, um, so there you go. It's it's just astounding. I'm speechless. The laws say you can't let them in, but even if they didn't. I mean, this is what I was talking about. You can never have a suicide pact like that. Every day this administration fails to act is another day they agree to the premise that the laws say this. I mean, in many ways, the Trump administration unilaterally passed an amnesty, the magnitude of which we never would have even feared under Hillary. I mean, the worst case scenario was those already here would get amnesty. We never thought that they would say you could come under the worst circumstances in the hundreds of thousands from all over the world from, I mean, I mean, this is Congo during an Ebola outbreak. Like, forget about your views on immigration. Just that alone, any Democrat, Republican, we always would have shut it off, at least during the time of the epidemic from that country. It's like you say, all right, the Central Americans are special. Yeah, we can't touch them for whatever reason. Forget about the mumps and measles, dengue fever, Zika, tuberculosis, flesh-eating diseases, chickenpox, scabies. But you would think they would draw a line in the sand with Angola, with, uh, well, Angola too, but Congo. But no, I mean, we got the evidence. Hundreds of them released. According to my sources, there's several thousand lined at various places um, south south of the central Texas border in areas between Laredo, Eagle Pass, Del Rio. And um, yeah, I mean, there we go. Now, one of our listeners... Um, Let's see who this is. Trying to see here. His name is David. David, you just uh, emailed me. You wanted to know what percentage of the legal immigrants 
are coming without having paid thousands to the cartels? Zero. I'm not sure if I was unclear about that. Um, 100% of them have to pay. So so the thing is, there, there was a period of time when the caravan started when they would just be so overwhelming in number and kind of have that public media protection that some of those caravans were able to get through. But now, as I've mentioned, the caravans were co-opted by the cartels. And actually, there's news today. Let me just find this here. Um, where's my stack? It's it's a it's a Spanish tweet. It's from a Spanish source. Um, that two accounts traced to Piedras Negras and Coila with links to the La Zetas faction of the Northeast Cartel, an independent smuggler in that area. Two other accounts show links to Gulf Cartel operations in Reynosa. This is from this is this organization Pueblo Sin Fronteras. It's an American-based group organizing the caravans. So they're the cartel. They're not working with the cartel. So they all pay. Um, now sometimes, depending on who who it is and where they are, sometimes it's multiple cartels they have to pay. Depending on which plazas they go through, sometimes it's one, and then sometimes they pay the cartels directly. Sometimes it's the smuggling organization they hire that just pays per head. You know, you pay the smuggler, and the smuggler will pay the cartel. Um, but either way, yeah, I mean, you're not missing anything. All of it, all of that is funneled through the cartel. So again, even if our laws would compel us to take it in any asylee, which again, only about 10% are expressing um, a desire for, for asylum, and 100% of those are bogus, but you you would never have to indulge that if they're paying your enemies and then your enemies weaponize that we talked about yesterday with Dan Steiner, the drones, the espionage on our forces to get in their stuff. I mean, again, every day Trump refuses to make this case is a day that we're seeding this point. Again, you're going to have some targeted enforcement actions by Mexico. And indeed this source I'm talking about is, they um, arrested two Pueblo Sin Fronteras dudes. And they had, um, again, this is where they found the information, the accounts tied to the cartels. Um, so the Mexican government did arrest them. And, and that's the thing. The one area where my analogy to Afghanistan is a little different is that with Afghanistan, so, you know, if you have a certain amount of areas where the Taliban controls, so the so-called Afghani government, yeah, they can't even go in there. Here, in the short run, it's it's a very subtle wink and nod relationship. It's a very, I think you all realize that it's a complicated relationship with um, the Mexican government and the cartels. They fight sometimes. They're neutral sometimes. They're allies sometimes. Depends which cartel, which politician. It's very complicated. So they have the ability in the short run, if the cartels feel it's worthwhile not to fight them, like the cartels know, all right, Mexican government, all right, AMLO, we know you got to show... Trump some temporary progress, some temporary photo ops, maybe even some progress. We'll let you do it. But they know they're not going to destroy their operation because they wouldn't let them do it. So they'll go through their territory. They'll make arrests. They'll, you know, arrest some migrants. And that is happening. But my fear is it's like there's two parallels. There's the numbers continuing to pour in, continuing not to change our policies, and then there's Trump's actions. And all these people are trying to lick Trump's boots 
are trying to say, yeah, 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 it's working. Good, good one, Trump. And again, I don't mind. I don't mind if, you know, you want to praise Trump's strategy. I said all along, I don't mind being tough on the Mexican government. I don't mind even using tariffs, whereas I don't particularly like tariffs. But for this purpose, I don't mind threatening it. But just don't rely on them, on Mexico, for the enforcement. Do it independently also yourself. We should be enforcing our own borders, number one. And number two, get the third-party agreement on asylum. And so far, we don't see that. We see Trump claiming, but denied by Mexico, some sort of middle ground return to Mexico status, which is short of a formal um, agreement. See, a formal agreement, formal third-party agreement, it actually says in statute it's unreviewable by the courts. So, um, there you go. My buddy Todd Benzman just sends out, sent out an article. Six Afghanis and six Iraqis caught among Central Americans. So, um, this is in, I believe it's in Guatemala. So you got a lot of that going on. We're never going to know for years to come the effects. Again, it's everything. When you have an open border and you have the worst, most vicious criminal enterprises right at your border to serve as a conduit and truncate the geographical distance between that and everything, you're going to bring in everything. Diseases, gangs, crime, drugs, bad people. You know what else you're going to bring in? It's funny. Um, Jessica Vaughn just sent me this you know, from CIS. There's this report from, um, what are they called? The National Institute of Justice. They put out a whole report. Historical overview of U.S. policy and legislative responses to honor-based violence, forced marriage, and female genital mutilation and cutting. They have a whole report on it. I don't have time to go into it now. Maybe we'll discuss it later this week. I'll try to I'll try to remember to link to it in show notes. But their their point is like I, I love how the left recognizes the problem and then they complain about it. So you know you have this a lot with on the one hand they say oh the immigrants are awesome, they're the most industrious people. So we're like, okay, so then let's make sure they're not on welfare. What do you mean? You you enforce public charge laws? Uh, half of them will be out on the street. Well, oh, I thought you said that they have so much money. Like, what, what, What's the deal? So it's a similar thing here. Like, when it comes to their priorities, they'll admit the truth. So what they want to do is they want to bring in more migrants from the countries where this is prevalent. So they say they're victims of... Honor-based violence, forced marriage, and female genital mutilation and cutting. And they'll talk all about it. Like, dude, yeah, how do you think you get it into our country? Because you're bringing it in. Meaning, rather than that being the impetus for A, prosecuting it here, and then B, deporting the offenders, and then not 
in, in the future, prospectively, not letting them in to begin with. They're like, hey, there's too many victims of this. Let's bring in their culture. So that's another thing we're bringing in too, I forgot to mention. Everything you can imagine. But anyway, this is the Guatemalan migration. I'm going on a Google Translate here from this article in... um, It's some sort of Guatemalan paper. The Guatemalan Migration Institute reported Tuesday that a total of 1,647 Cubans were housed in the country between January and April of this year. Cubans are the largest group of undocumented migrants housed in the official centers of the Guatemalan government, followed by 354 Haitians and 241 Congolese. Um, I mean, Haiti is another one. You want to talk about diseases? Wow. Holy smokes. Holy smokes. That's a real... um, Wow. <laughs> they got cholera. They got typhoid. Um, again, everything known to man. Venezuela, Cuba, Congo, Haiti. I mean, you you couldn't make this stuff up. You you just couldn't do it. You just couldn't do it. I'm sorry. It's impossible. Um. They they talk about uh, in total, two thousand five hundred seventy seven migrants have been attended from the American, African, and Asian continents. Again, there's a rough translation here. From Asia, there have been six Afghanis and six Iraqis. Um, yeah, sometimes you got to get the truth from uh, <laughs> foreign press. It's always a tactic. Can't rely on our own. I'm going to start again. Who is our Trent Tate? Who is our man who will protect us? Well, we're going to have to do it on our own. But the worst thing we can do is let Trump know that this is okay. That this is okay. That is the worst thing we can do. Even if the Mexican deal would work a little bit. We have laid down the marker that unless Mexico does something, there is nothing we can do, no matter the... I mean, it could be inextricably linked to military-style invasions and security breaches and diseases. We must let in anyone prospectively. That is the big danger. We cannot let that stand. Most people don't know the laws. Trump has a megaphone, so if Trump says the law says something, he's de facto rhetorically repealing our laws. It's a very big problem. We can't let this go, and I'm not going to let it go. I'm proud of our work on this issue, that at every moment we've given you over the last two years, especially on this issue, the last year in particular, every major piece of information, we've given you all the strategies at and the messaging that should have been employed at the right moments that had we been doing this we would have been well on our way to proving this everything we've ever said on this issue has been proven right and that's the best we can do i need you guys to give this show to 10 of your friends and relatives please subscribe some of you might um just 
download and listen, but you're not a subscriber, you just because you know you just don't bother to do it. Please, please do me a favor and subscribe. It will help as we we start to look again for advertisers. We're gonna start that up again. That's the way I maintain my independence. When everyone is bought out, that's the way I could just look and say, look, what is the American view? I want Trump to succeed. You see how badly it is, but it's not about him. It shouldn't be about anyone. You know, I backed Cruz in the primary and I've been down on him. So there's nobody sacred. It's about we need someone to give that American view with the right knowledge, doing the right work, doing the legwork on it. And I'm going to try as much as I can, but I need your help. Please subscribe, Stitcher, iTunes, wherever you get it. Um, it will help the numbers. And again, pass the show around so everyone could hear a truth. And, and even, even people that aren't conservative, this is the type of news and perspective that you know is independent. I'm not coming from any party line. Uh, I am conservative, but a lot of people don't even know what it means to be conservative. We're consistent about it. We explain what it means. And also, I think you know, you're going to learn a lot more about the process and policies that, frankly, you're not going to hear from anyone right or left. That's our commitment here at the Conservative Conscience. Till tomorrow, God bless you all. Thank you for your support. 